The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Great to have you with us for today's episode, which centres around two Dutch managers managing English football teams. That is Eric Ten Hag and Serena Wiegman. These are two managers with a big fortnight ahead of them. Wiegman's Lionesses have the final two group games in their Nations League campaign at the start of December and realistically need to win both in order to have even a chance of winning the group. While in Manchester, Ten Hag's side have lost eight of their 16 matches in Premier League and Champions League this season. And over the next two weeks, a crucial game against Galatasaray lies in between league games at Everton, at Newcastle, and at home to Chelsea. So today we're going to talk about these two managers to try and understand what are their shared challenges and what's specific to their situations. But also Dutch managers more generally coming to coach an English side. How tough is it? How much do they have to adapt? And is national identity, Dutch or otherwise, still relevant in this day and age? I'm Ali Maxwell. Michael Cox is with us. Hi, Michael. Hi, Ali. Excited for this one. Yeah, looking forward to it. I mean, this is my, I think, my favourite thing about football is just national identities and the kind of weird compromises managers have to make when they work abroad or the things they pick up and how certain styles clash and certain styles work together. So yeah, looking forward to it. We've also got Charlotte Harper with us, who's the Athletics women's football writer. Hi, Charlotte. Hello, Ali. It is quite a big few weeks for Serena Wiegman and the Lionesses. Uh, when you wrote the match report after their defeat to the Netherlands in September, you wrote that throughout 2023... England have ground out results despite subpar performances. Looking back at that, you think, oh, they lost to the Netherlands, but they'll just find a way as they did resoundingly at the Euros and then less convincingly at the World Cup. But now they face two must-win fixtures and even then it's out of their hands to qualify for the Olympics. And the Olympics for Team GB is a big deal in women's football because they play the first teams, you know, the heavyweights, the US um, all the well, most of the European teams they want to win that gold medal. We're going to get deeper into Serena Wiegmann's lionesses, but just quickly, Charlotte, in terms of the the perhaps underwhelming 2023, are there any sort of obvious reasons for it? Anything that's been discussed as being the, the key reason for for the lionesses seeming a little under par? I know there's been injuries, and then there's the much talked about across sports, the disease of more when a team that's already won something maybe struggles for for motivation to to go again. I think injuries, big part, missing Leah Williamson, Beth Mead, Millie Bright was coming into the tournament with a knock. Fixture congestion schedule as well for the Lionesses. They've been in, played every game of the last two major tournaments. But also, and we'll come on to this, maybe just a bit of predictability from Serena Wiegmann. Coming into the Euros, no one really knew what to expect and they hit Europe by storm. And now teams have a blueprint of how to beat England. Uh, Liam Tharms here as well. Uh, Liam, you wrote recently about the marriage between the Manchester United way and the Eric Ten Hag philosophy, which has been a big topic at the moment within the United fan base. Hello, Ali. Yeah, it's uh, some good quotes from a couple of weeks back now where he said he can't play like Ajax play with Ajax being his former club. And it stimulated some interesting discussions, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into. Michael, Dutch national football identity always seems like one of the strongest, one of the proudest across world football. To what extent do you think national identity or national footballing identity can still be a, a perceptible thing in such a globalised football world? 
Yeah, I really think it is. And I, I felt this a lot at the Women's World Cup in the summer, actually, particularly when there was kind of debates about why the US were underperforming. And also when Brazil went out in the group stage, I think after that, I asked Jack Lang, who is our kind of South American expert, Brazilian football expert. I said, is there any chat about how, you know, Brazil, they don't really have any kind of prescribed, predetermined passing patterns, you know, in attack uh, in the women's side. And he kind of laughed at me and said, well, the last thing Brazilians want is predetermined passing patterns. You know, their game is entirely about improvisation and attack. So just a small thing like that, you know, that's a kind of European South American divide. And, you know, Brazil's men's national team is doing something quite interesting at the moment with Fernando Diniz, who is kind of really going against the positional play and wants more improvisation from his players. But yeah, I still think it is a thing. And I think Dutch football is quite interesting because it's probably had the most influence of any country over the last half century on how European football is played. To a certain extent, I think everyone is playing a form of Dutch football or Dutch football as it would be considered in the 1970s. So I think the Netherlands are always in a strange position where they really want to define what they are, but also everyone is trying to be them. So they they sometimes do have this kind of identity crisis. Well, I mean, how would you define the Dutch footballing philosophy? I mean, the, I think the, the fundamental thing is width. They have, they've always, almost always played with great width. They produce proper wingers. And it's all about space. I mean, they always want to keep a high defensive line and press from the front, which again, over the last 10 years, probably every top club, every top country tries to do that. But yeah, that was a, you know, fairly specific to the Netherlands at one point in time. And of course, on top of that, there's there's a real emphasis upon possession play. It's not fundamentally a results-based approach to football. I think it's about the style. It's about the philosophy. There is a certain way you're meant to play. Um, and I guess the the... Dutch national team, at least the men's national team, have kind of epitomised that. We we generally think of them as one of the most stylish nations, but they've only ever won one trophy in, in the history. Liam, the word philosophy has, has been much more common over the last decade or so in, in football discourse than it ever was before. What do you understand footballing philosophy to mean, whether it's a, a national identity or a manager trying to get across his ideas? Yeah, it can be quite a vague and abstract thing. It, it, it's a word I think everyone knows it, but we don't always know what it means or it can mean very different things to different people. Uh, there's a great sort of quote from from Sir Alex Ferguson in, in the piece that I wrote where he sort of says that, you know, some managers speak about football in, in too many abstract terms. And at the end of the day, it's played by people that are, you know, that are flesh and blood, that all have differences. And that's one of the things I think we're seeing now with, with Manchester United's men's team in, in particular, that the the United way is a is a term that, I, I grew up hearing through that sort of peak or the the second or third peak of the of the Sir Alex Ferguson team and never really got to know what it meant beyond winning. And I was speaking to Carl Anker, one of our United writers, about this and was saying, Can you explain to me what the United way is as a sort of a as a style, as a way that you could you know, you could then if you have a way of um measuring or articulating it, you can you know, train the academy players that way because you then have sort of requirements for positions or demands. You can recruit players that way. And he was like, "It's it's been winning, it's been trophies, it's been success. And I think that now they've come off of a sustained period of doing that and really have just sort of undulated in terms of success under various different managers. I think it's becoming a slightly problematic term because people really put stock into someone having it or sort of not having it. And you look at how much the game has evolved now from 20, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago, the idea that you should play, I think, rooted in a way a team was playing in the 1980s, 
doesn't make as much sense now because the game's quicker, it's faster, um, the demands are different. Let's try and nail down the, as we understand them, the footballing specifics of the the playing style, philosophies, if you like, of Eric Ten Hag and, and Serena Wiegmann. Uh, Michael, what sort of common links are there, would you say, between the two? I mean, I, I think there's a common link and I think they're both quite similar to Louis van Gaal, um, who's obviously a hugely successful Dutch coach. But I feel like obviously the Dutch coach that gets cited most often is is Johan Cruyff, who is a kind of more glamorous figure, obviously a legendary player, believed more in the kind of talent and in, uh, invention of individuals in the final third. But I think both these managers have, have much more prescribed um, expectations of their attacking players. I think they're slightly reluctant to indulge superstars or individuals. I think you can see that in different ways. The way Ten Hag moved Cristiano Ronaldo on basically as soon as he could was notable in a kind of different way, not a tactical sense, but Serena Wiegmann wasn't really up for playing along with the the Steph Horton thing, who is a big character, but maybe not the right type of player for her football. And there's a kind of, I think, quite a curious contradiction, which maybe we'll come on to later, between being quite strict and being almost like a... I mean, they've both got a background as teachers, which I think is really interesting. Van Howe and Wiegmann in their early coaching days, or I think in their playing days as well, they both were PE teachers just in kind of normal schools in the Netherlands. And I kind of think they treat their players in a similar way. It's it's not about indulging them. It's about discipline. But at the same time, it's also about a collective agreement where players can kind of speak up and determine the side's philosophy uh, mutually, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Charlotte, uh, between Wiegmann and Ten Hag, I mean, do we know if their paths or to what extent their paths have crossed over their careers? They're there's only an, a year between them in terms of age, obviously been involved in the, in the game, um, both in Dutch football and now over in England for, for some time now. The one common link is Wiegmann's assistant, Arjen Verink, who comes from the same area as Eric Ten Hag. And Arjen is close with Eric and they will text uh, frequently. And Arjen is the tactical genius behind Serena Wiegmann's plans. So that's a really interesting triad there. Let's quickly move through the pitch and, and see in, in which areas they are similar or, or not so similar uh, in, t- in terms of playing out from the back. To what extent is this an obligation for Wiegmann's uh, England, Charlotte, in terms of build up right from those deeper areas? England like to build up from the back and that starts with Mary Earps, uh, who has been key to England. Um, she has solid distribution, especially among her passing accuracy. She'll also take time to set up. I spoke to Rebecca Welch, a referee, and she knows that Mary Epps is quite slow to take goal kicks because of her pinpoint distribution. Mary Epps isn't the best shot stopper. She actually struggles in the league and performs better for England than Manchester United. So she, for example, in the Euros, she was expected to concede 7.2 goals and only conceded two. Yes, Distribution for Serena Wiegmann is important. Mary Earps will either play it short or can go wide or hit longer. And we'll come on to this later. The key thing for Earps, and it's not tactical at all, is confidence and belief, which going back to Michael's point about being a teacher and that trust, players not fearing you but respecting you. And Mary Earps wasn't picked for the Olympic squad in 2021. Serena Wiegmann comes into September 2021 and says to Mary Earps, you're going to be my number one and backs her. And when Mary Earps won her FIFA Best Award, she 
thanked Wiegmann personally for giving her that opportunity and, and that belief. Serena, uh, I've, I've run out of words to, to say thanks to you for the opportunity you've given me to chase my wildest dreams and for believing in me in the way you have. That's interesting, Liam, isn't it? Because when it comes to Andre Onana and Ten Hag at Manchester United, well, uh, that was his goalkeeper at Ajax as well. And in terms of style too, Onana known really more in, in, in terms of being world-class for his distribution uh, over other established shot stoppers, uh, but has struggled at, at times this season. So did you expect a, such a struggle for Onana at, at Manchester United or is it part of that trade-off with different leagues, different styles and uh, sort of distribution versus shot stopping? Yeah, I think you've got to take Silent into account to some regard. Even, I mean, Inter aren't one of the more expansive teams in, in Serie A, but could build up really well from the back. Um, there's also a case that he was frequently playing into either Edin Dzeko or Letaro Martinez, both of who are really, really comfortable at sort of receiving and back to go and, and setting, um, you know, setting passes off. I think the Champions League final was a, was a great example of that. So his his longer distribution really, I think, is even better than sort of his stuff playing over short distances. I think it's not helped that United seem to be caught, I think, a bit between the two of Ten Hag came out and he, he spoke about saying, look, we want to play short, but sometimes when teams go man for man, you know, if someone like Manchester City are pressing us, then it makes more sense to go direct and play long. And when you've got Erasmus Hoyland who can who can run in behind, you've got a Marcus Rashford players that are better the closer to the goal they get, probably not moving towards their own goal to receive the ball. It makes a lot of sense. And I think they also struggle because and they're building now a consistent back line, admittedly not the first, second or maybe even third choice back line that he would have wanted, but They've really lost a lot of balance in that back line, I think. They've not frequently not had a left footer in, in the back line. It was a big thing for Ten Hag. I think last season where he said he wouldn't play Maguire on the left of a back two because he wanted a left footer there. Um, they frequently had Diego Dallo um, on, on the left side of defence as a right footer who's often, you know, that can be a really good sort of pressing trigger for a team to, to lock someone in there. But I did actually think recently that uh, against Copenhagen in the away game in the Champions League, I thought they built out really nice in the first half. They seemed to hit quite a few more switches. They weren't always as um, slow and methodical. So they've got to find solutions and are doing it in a really uh, undesirable way just because of how awkward I think the, the squad dynamic has become with all the injuries and the fact now that they're playing so much for results, I think, as much as they are performances. Yeah, and I think both managers have made a big statement with their use of centre-backs. I mean, Manchester United, you know, Ten Hag's been criticised for some of the signings he's brought in, a lot of whom have been at Ajax previously. But the one who has worked has been... Uh, Martinez, the left-sided centre-back, who I know has been out injured for most of this season. But when he first came in, there was so much chat about the fact that he was small. He's 5'11", I think. He's not particularly great in the air. But I think because of his tenacity on the ground and most notably his his really good distribution from the, the left of that uh, centre-back pairing, he's, he's yeah, he's been the symbol of them, really. He's probably been the, the player that most summarises what Ten Hag's Manchester United are all about. And I think you can say the same thing for Wiegmann. I mean... She made Leo Williamson her captain. She wasn't irregular before Wiedemann came in. And then on top of that, having intended to use her as not just a holding midfielder, but actually a box-to-box midfielder, she then put her in at centre-back. And I don't think Leo Williamson is the best defender England have got. But I think there's quite a few who are better in a kind of winning the ball sense. But she's unquestionably the best, maybe the best in the world at passing out from the back. And obviously she was injured for this summer's World Cup. But again, you know, as the captain, she's really the symbol of that side. And I think sometimes these managers, they're happy to take risks. They're happy for mistakes to be made defensively from their centre-backs. 
because they're more likely to be in in charge of the game. And we've become accustomed to, you know, centre-backs who are not necessarily natural defenders. But, you know, you look at Manchester City, they've gone in the other direction, really. They're playing lots of centre-backs and asking them to step in midfield. So it's been interesting to see that these two are still quite committed to playing unconventional centre-backs. You're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast with Ali Maxwell. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Michael brought up width as the key word when we talk about the Dutch football philosophy and it's certainly an interesting topic here because clearly at Manchester United under Ten Hag the form, the impact of their wide attacking players in particular has been pretty hit and miss um, despite quite a lot of money being spent on certain individuals and you know that has been one of their issues in not being a consistent top team at the, at the at Premier League level whereas Charlotte, it always strikes me watching England that England's wingers under Wiegmann are basically the, the key attacking players and generally the ones that, that really do step up. So that could be Hemp, it could be Mead, it could be Chloe Kelly uh, and of course Lauren James as well. Definitely. The key to England attack undeniably and when they're on form, they're on fire. Just look at Beth Mead's uh, performance in the Euros. She was the catalyst that that triggered a lot of those England attacks. But when they're slightly subpar, England struggle. Obviously, Mead's injury and Hemp uh, and Kelly have been patchy with form. We've seen Hemp also go up in the number nine role. But what Wiegmann did when she came in is, you know, recognises those strengths in your team. So if you've got Hemp, Mead and Kelly, make those super strengths. And she's very direct with the players about that is don't focus on the, on the opposition, focus on your strengths and plus 10 on that. I, Katie Wyatt, my colleague, also spoke to Lika Martins, Dutch player uh, now at PSG, um, about her positioning on the wing. Is it cutting inside or on the outside? And Wiegmann and Verink, her assistant, can be very specific on when you stay on the inside or when you stay out wide. But again, that balance between school teacher and improvisation, Wiegmann gives those players the freedom, as Michael was saying with the Brazilian team, the willingness to act on your instinct. And again, we'll come on to this about making mistakes as well. So Wiegmann has this really interesting balance between being quite didactic in what she wants, as well as you make the decision and just learn from your mistake if you make it, but have the belief and freedom to tap into your potential. Uh, Liam, that's interesting from a United point of view, because when individual players are playing with instinct and playing well with instinct, it looks incredible. But when they're trying to play with instinct, but they have neither the confidence or the, or the form, whatever the case may be, or, or the ability in some cases, and not specific to Manchester United, of course, uh, to, to kind of execute, then it, it looks terrible. It looks horrible. But it strikes me that a lot of this comes, you know, you can go back a step and look at how cohesive the team is as a whole, uh, as probably the, the big factor between how these you know, the 1v1 players, which are generally the wide attackers in any team in the modern game, they do kind of live or die by 
their 1v1 ability and, and that makes that role quite specific. Um, you can be the hero, but you can also be the current crop of Manchester United wide forwards who have barely had a goal contribution between them this season. Yeah, it's it's very much all or nothing. I think I think Arsenal are probably a good point of comparison with, with their men's team last season in having in Saka Martinelli and again, these are two inverted wingers similar to, to how United play that were their primary goal-scoring threats for probably two-thirds of the season. And it then got to a point where, and Arteta began to bemoan it, where teams would just sit off them so much and they would double up out wide. And I think that's what a lot of teams are now doing to United, is that you go, okay, because we don't think you're really a balanced threat across the pitch. If we can take out particularly Marcus Rashford on the left and double up on him really and and stop the one inside, he's not really, I think, quite as good as some of the others at, at going to the byline, then you've not got perhaps a Martin Odegaard or I know he ironically said this week that goals aren't his primary thing, Gabriel Jesus, but a striker in number nine that can come in and, and consistently and reliably score. So I think it, it makes you a bit more predictable and I also have concerns about, I just think their, their balance and dynamic in midfield that, you know, it was, it was Ten Hag's first game where he, he played uh, Christian Eriksen as a false nine and he has uh, come increasingly further down the pitch and has basically become a single pivot now as they're sort of trying to work out, okay, at times you want Scott McTominay on the pitch and he can sort of play off of Hoyland or um, or a number nine and be almost like a second striker. But then you're losing that sort of profile in midfield. They've tried a diamond as well. They can't seem to quite get, uh, to use a, a Mark Carey phrase, that the alchemy or the, the balance quite right. And teams are, are, are spotting that. It's uh, It was a it was quite clear when they played Fulham recently and I asked Peter Rutzler, our Fulham writer, to ask Marco Silva about this because he picked uh, Ewobi, I think it was, João Paulinha um, and Andreas Pereira as his midfield three and normally he would put Harrison Reed in there whereas Ewobi is much more of a creative player and afterwards uh, Marco Silva just said, yeah, we wanted more more control, more creativity and you know, it's the idea now that teams think they can go and dominate the midfield and, and control games against Manchester United. In terms of the centre-forward position, I mean, Charlotte, what do we understand about the way that Wiegmann wants her number nine to play? What sort of profile is she after? Is it all about being the, the, you know, the end point of attacks and, and scoring goals? Or is it about more the work that they do outside of that, more of an all-round thing? Really interesting question. Ellen White's best quality when she was playing for England was triggering that press and the work off the ball. And most people were calling for Alessia Russo to start with the Euros. But Alessia Russo has had to work on that game to identify those triggers on when to press and when to hold. So in answer to your question, I think more off the ball work for her centre forward. And then goals can come elsewhere on the pitch. What's interesting is in the lead up to the World Cup, Wiegmann said, no, we're not going to start two number nines when they were debating between Alessia Russo or Lauren Hemp. And then at moments she has now started with those two number nines, but it's still not a a fixed point of clarity for England at the moment. And Alessia Russo has struggled in front of goal. Wiegmann bangs on about ruthlessness (laughs) and saying her team is not being clinical enough. But it's one point, and I'd be interested to see Michael's thoughts on this, that we don't really speak that much about Wiegmann's philosophy with the number nine. Yeah, I mean, it's been a funny one, hasn't it? Because there's been so many different options up there. Obviously, since White retired, we then thought Russo would automatically be the number nine. Then you had this weird situation where Daly went from being a fullback to a striker and then back to a fullback, which is extremely unusual. But yeah, I I, th- I tend to think she prefers Russo because she is better in terms of link play. I think Daly's so good when the ball's wide attacking crosses, but I'm not sure that her link player in, in kind of number 10 positions is quite as good. 
But yeah, it's always been a bit of a Dutch thing. You know, another another way that they've probably been ahead of the game, they always speak about the centre forward as, you know, not just being a goal scorer. There's always been a kind of hybrid of number 10, number nine. I mean, I think a good example of this is when Dennis Burkamp was playing for Ajax, he was the number nine. Like they saw a player like that, who we think of in England as creative and scores a few goals. They thought of him as someone who would lead the line. And I think that model is maybe more accepted in European football now. But yeah, they, they rarely produce pure goal scorers, aside from Ruud van Nistelrooy. And even, even he was kind of not that well-liked in the Netherlands because he was a bit too a bit too blunt. But yeah, you can see that in the women's game as well. I mean, someone like Vivian Miedema is... Is she still the WSL top goal scorer? She must still be. But she's, I mean, seems to prefer playing as number 10 because she's, you know, about linking play as much as, as much as she is scoring goals. And can we even say definitively, Liam, what Ten Hag's Manchester United number nine philosophy is, what he wants, what he expects, what he needs. It just feels like that position has been such a mess since, well, throughout his whole tenure, really. I think the number nine thing is it's been a real problem for United going back years now in terms of the cycle of strikers and number nines they went through and then didn't really have a, a player that would... I, I think their last player to score 20 Premier League goals or more in a season is, is Van Persie, going back quite a way now, um, which when you think about the, the quality that, that Spurs have had in, in Kane and Son, um, Liverpool across their front line, Arsenal now, like every other club that has a comparable budget and a, of a comparable size has, has had quality quality scorers and in, in different types of striker as well, in, in players that can drop deeper, in sort of inside forwards... I've just quickly taken a look at um, the, the top scorers under Ten Hag across all of his clubs. And, and the top three stand out as being quite interesting. Dusan Tadic is, is number one and has got almost as many assists as he has goals and has just been wildly creative, which I think when I've watched him has been a mix of either playing from out wide or also playing sort of a, a false nine role. And that probably works better in, a, in an Ajax team that dominates so much of the ball. And, and you can do that and have those overloads. But Sebastian Haller follows him and Klaas-Jan Huntelaar follows Haller. So they're two real, I think, sort of box forwards, taller, more physical presences, closer to what we're seeing now in terms of Rasmus Hoyland as a, as a striker. Someone who has an extraordinary physical profile. And I really feel quite bad for him because he's you know he's he's young and he's got a lot of pressure on him but he's already being targeted physically for I think it's a recurring back problem he's got or a, a possible back injury and he's really getting a lot of sort of contact he's taking in games and that is obviously just a difficult balance to have as a as a manager because he's regularly not playing a full game he's often coming off at sort of 70 75 minutes and when you think about the proportion of goals that are scored late on and you can't feasibly, especially now with how much added time gets included, I don't think it's realistic to build a game plan around something for 70 minutes and sort of hope or be be reliant on subs. So it's difficult and it's complicated by two of your better attacking threats being Scott McTominay and Marcus Rashford, who we've sort of already spoken about, and sort of going, well, how do you then almost fit the number nine around a second striker and a wide forward um, or, or an inverted winger rather than the other way around, which I think is how teams tend to do it, where the number nine is, is the main option. You're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast with Ali Maxwell. Talk about how things look on the pitch and how they would like things to look on the pitch. What about the other side of being a football manager, you know, off-field stuff, management? 
one of the most important things within that field is communication, one's ability to communicate your ideas to your players in order also to motivate your players, your staff as well, but equally, you know, being the, the face of a club in the media and talking so often to the press. Uh, Michael, uh, how much of an issue has this been for Ten Hag? Yeah, I think it has been a bit of an issue, actually. I mean, we know that the Dutch are, are famed for being very direct and being very honest and maybe not bit playing along with the things you're meant to at times. And I think there's been a big contrast from... I mean, the Manchester United manager that has had the most credit in the bank has been Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, obviously because he was already a legend at the club, but also because he he played along with the things you're meant to say as Manchester United manager. He talked about the traditions and the you know the history of the club. We haven't really seen that much from Ten Hag because I don't think he believes in it the same way Liam doesn't believe in it too much. But I think if you are the manager, there's certain things you've got to be a little bit clever with. And I think at times... I mean, it's not, I mean, his English is clearly very, very good. He speaks English very well. But I think at times I've, in interviews, I've kind of noticed him slightly struggling for the best way to express himself at times. And I think maybe that's been a bit of an issue. And he's also had this problem, and I don't know the details. I don't think any of us know the details, but he has had this problem with Jaden Sancho, where I think there was, a, you know, at one point there was a suggestion that he had, in a press conference, been a little bit too honest and revealed a little bit too much about the the situation there. Whatever the the reality is, it hasn't been resolved. And Jaden Sancho, who's a hugely talented player, hasn't played for Manchester United for the for the past three months. So, yeah, I, I think that has been a, a little bit of an issue. I don't know whether that's uh, purely the the kind of Dutch thing, the directness, the honesty, but I I don't think it's something he's particularly mastered so far compared to other managers. Even compared to Ars- uh, Arteta at Arsenal, for example, I think was. Was very, is very good in terms of communication and, and getting the fans on board. Do you notice parallels there, Charlotte, with Serena Wiegmann? I mean, she is an absolute legend in England for her tenure as the Lionesses manager for, for winning the Euros in particular and taking England to a World Cup final. But just on that note, over her tenure, have there been um, aspects of the, of the communication that you think have been a little awkward? When you say, oh, the cat's out of the bag, Serena, and she looks at you and says, sorry, <laughs> Or if anybody's speaking too quickly, she just interrupts them straight away. Sorry, you're going to have to slow down. Her English is very good, but there are some phrases. uh, She'll say swift to the players rather than switch. When she first started, okay, was like, it's okay. And the players thought, oh, it's average when she meant actually it's very good. It's it's a good standard. But I think Serena Wiegmann does not say anything explorative or revealing in her pre-match press conferences and I think that's also combined with her clarity she knows what she wants to say and she knows how she'll say it and she knows the extent to which she can say it in English so she just sticks to that line she doesn't really deviate from that sentences are short and if she needs to expand she'll expand and if she doesn't she's very happy to say three word answers but uh, in comparison to Ten Hag I think of course different contexts different levels of success, different club sizes compared to a national team. But uh, Serena Wiegmann has played the media very well. There's an interesting thing about Wiegmann in that despite having, you know, I'd say near flawless English when she arrived, she hired a football-specific English teacher because she was quite aware that there was going to be certain phrases that maybe meant something different. Um, and she's not the only one to do that, but I... I think it's quite unusual to do that when your grasp of English is is so good, you know. Um, so I think that's interesting. It shows that even 
a relatively short journey over the over the sea between Netherlands and England, there can be things that are lost in translation. And she was very, very clear that she wanted to iron out any of those small differences. So I do think that's, uh, yeah, probably an, a good example for uh, for managers from any foreign countries working in England or even English managers working abroad, of course, even if you have a, a perfect grasp of the language. In a football-specific context, what seems a direct translation can mean a slightly different thing. That's classic Serena Wiegmann, though. She wants to be prepared for every situation and will not leave any stone unturned. She may not share this with her playing team, but with her staff, they'll go through every scenario. What happens if we get a red card? What happens if uh, the opposition get a red card? And her controlling nature is, well, if I've prepared anything, everything possible, then what else can I do? I just have to let the sport play out. But she feels a lot more at ease when she's prepared for every scenario. So if she can hire a football-specific English teacher, she'll do so. Just on that, a really interesting thing I thought was before the Netherlands Euro 2017 campaign, which they eventually won under Sreda Wiegmann, one of the things she did just to make sure her players were perfectly prepared was that in the last few training sessions when they were playing kind of small-sided games, she got her assistants who were kind of acting as the referee for those games to constantly make really bad decisions. So the players just became completely flustered about it so that they got used to one, bad decisions and two, having to kind of still play, you know, under pressure, under stress, under the annoyance of having decisions go against you. Just little things like that. Again, I'm sure it's not unique. She's probably borrowed it from somewhere else, but I do like those little things. I think it it shows that you're really preparing for every eventuality. I spoke to um, Anouk Decker, who was under Wiegmann at that stage, about it was called a kind of pre-tournament uh, competition and they won points. And these mini tournaments that Michael described were part of that. And she was fuming at Wiegmann. She was like, I didn't understand. And she had a conversation with Serena a few years, few years afterwards and said, I couldn't stand it anymore with both of you. She was so angry with them. And Serena Wiegmann and I and Virenk were just kind of sitting in their offices thinking, oh, yeah, we really we really got this out of the players. So uh, she knows how to get the best out of individuals. Yeah, that's certainly becoming clear, the, the sort of, as you say, how how planned everything is, the poise with which she has managed that team uh, and, and those that she managed before it. I mean, it, it makes me want to advise any new uh, foreign manager coming over to England to hire maybe two uh, language coaches, maybe someone like Liam to talk you through the terminology of, of modern tactics. But I think also there'd be some value in getting Adam Hurry on board for a couple of lessons, uh, the more idiomatic phrases that that you know we all know and love, but might or you could easily see catching out a, a non-native speaker. Michael, I'm very wary of of generalizing too much. We, we are talking about two Dutch managers in England, but doesn't necessarily mean that obviously all Dutch people share the same traits. Would you say that in leadership terms, there is a, a classic Dutch approach though? Yeah, I really think there is. I think this goes back historically to Runes Mikkels and Johan Cruyff, who really believed in players speaking up and players kind of coming up with solutions in the dressing room themselves and it not just being a, you know, a top-down thing. I think Louis van Gaal, his his philosophy was he always wanted to make the players think like coaches. And that probably shows by the fact that so many of his players have gone on to become coaches. And I think there is a, there's a kind of very democratic approach to 
leadership from Dutch coaches. And I think it's quite interesting that, I mean, Serena Wiegmann's recently brought out a book that is kind of framed as being about leadership rather than just football. And that's not entirely uncommon. I mean, Sir Alex Ferguson and Carlo Ancelotti and I think Emma Hayes all have books that are kind of geared around the same thing. But I do think it's really interesting in the sense that she does, it's clear that she wants kind of dissent from her players. She wants to be challenged. And I think that's quite unusual historically in English football. And even in the book itself, I mean, there's lots of kind of contributions from players that she's coached and some of her coaching staff. And some of it is actually quite critical of her. I mean, there's a there's a player called Meryl van Dongen who was uh, left out of the um, Netherlands squad for Euro 2017. And she's really critical of the way that Wiegman did it in terms of kind of giving her the news and then expecting her to stay at the training camp for another couple of days. And she talks about how difficult she found it and how it took her several months to get over it. And just even that, I think other managers would be reluctant to include that in what is kind of a semi-autobiography. But it's it's very notable that she has an approach that is, yeah, I want the players to to think about football, to give feedback, to challenge me. And I think that's interesting compared to Manchester United because you know, there's always been this thing in recent years at Manchester United that there's too much player power. And I've, I've always, personally, I've always been quite reluctant to embrace that complaint because I think players understand football. I think they should have opinions. And I think often, as there has been under Ten Hag's predecessor, they realised he wasn't up to it. And, you know, sometimes you have to speak up and not just rely on managers who are, you know, underperforming. Yeah, I agree with Michael. It's, I think it can be a a slightly lazy analysis sometimes and it's often a certain certain type or, or style of player that tends to get branded at, uh, you know often as as being sort of too powerful it's it's like rarely a progressive center back that tends to be or sort of a, a goalkeeper there's always um a certain style player and it, it's something that i think we're seeing on the english coaching side of things now in english coaching circles that, that I've, I've seen and been a part of that player ownership and, and responsibility has become a really big thing and it's something that a lot of coaches sort of want and there's now discussions i guess on how you give the right amount and what's not enough what's too much because there's there's stories aren't there of um you know certain managers saying okay you can pick the team for this game i've seen stuff in academies where you know, players as young as sort of 12, 13 will be given ownership for, okay, how are we going to play tactically in this half? Or, you know, the captain can lead lead these sorts of things. Um, and it's that recognition now that look, players are, are really, really smart. Uh, I did a piece on, on the RZ uh, Academy and they, they use sort of brain training and brain assessments. And speaking to uh, one of the people that, you know, helped create the software and helped run it, he's saying how footballers are, are really specifically smart in their recognition of things and information processing. They're as good as like air traffic controllers as lawyers they're just not necessarily textbook smart um, and these are people that you can and increasingly have to empower because the game's got so quick now so by the time a manager wants to shout something the sequence of players already happened so you need to um, yeah, have players that are smart uh, because you just haven't got the time anymore Seriously interesting that that, all that stuff, I think. Um, just to, to finish off, we've been so focused on two Dutch managers and their jobs within English football. But uh, happily, Charlotte, we've also got the reverse of this. Uh, Mark Parsons, the reverse Wiegmann. 
is what no one probably called him. Uh, that being an English coach who was in charge of the Dutch women's national team. Um, what was his experience like there? And was there a, a reverse culture clash? Yeah, I spoke to Mark for The Athletic and he said it was the hardest job in women's football. He jumped into the lion's den, which given that the Netherlands were at the top of the game, having been European champions and then World Cup finalists, it was a tough ask. During the Euros, uh, Jill Rod gave an interview with a Dutch outlet saying Parsons' meetings were too long, players had to interrupt him, and he gave a lot more talks compared to Wiegmann. And now Mark said to me, yes, that probably was the case in September when he first joined. Meetings were 15 to 30 minutes rather than 10 to 15. And he did have to adapt to that different culture. He was saying how, you know, if you're from the uh, east of Holland or the west of Holland is very different attitudes. And by the end of the Euros, he felt it was going quite swimmingly. But that just probably emphasises Wiegmann's directness and how um, to the point she is, as well as her assistant iron, you know, opposition meetings are very short, sharp. And if you need more information, come and ask questions. But it's hard replacing a core. Remember that Serena Wiegmann took her assistant and the general manager, Anja van Ginhoven, over to England. So she had kind of a Dutch nucleus to spread and infiltrate her messages throughout the England camp. And I think that is key. So you have your your really close-knit and that's easier to then disseminate your philosophy and your message when you transfer from one culture to another. Yeah, it's broadly easier from a language point of view as well, given the Dutch nation's aptitude for, for English uh, compared to ours for Dutch. Um, Michael, there is a, a bit of uh, history of British managers working in the Netherlands in the men's game. Um, Steve McLaren did his best to, I wouldn't go as far as say learn Dutch, but adapt his way of expressing himself while he was over there. I sort of knew uh, when I came here and uh, Champions League, uh, Liverpool or Arsenal I thought maybe one of them we would draw and uh, it is Arsenal I think yeah he did and, and did very well of course won the won the league title and I think was probably more suited to Dutch culture because he was such a I think a really intelligent guy tactically and Bobby Robson who, who also won the league title there what nearly what about 15 years beforehand he kind of had the slight opposite experience where he was very surprised how much focus there was on tactics in the Netherlands. And I remember at one point was complaining about the press conferences and said that the journalists there all think like little coaches, which I thought was a really funny thing to say, but kind of does sum up, I guess, the, the slightly different approach in the Netherlands to, to writing about football. Mm, absolutely. Well, it's been really interesting to have this discussion uh, about Wiegmann, about Ten Hag. So a massive thank you to to Charlotte, to Michael uh, and to Liam as well for joining me on this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Thank you to you for listening as well. Uh, make sure that you get in touch with us on Twitter or on the Athletic app. Um, we're more than happy to take suggestions for future episodes. In fact, we need them uh, because it's a long old season and we've got plenty uh, of episodes to bring you between now and the end of the campaign. But do sign up to the Athletic Today, you can read uh, Charlotte as she'll cover England's crucial Nations League games in a couple of weeks' time. Of course, the Athletics' coverage of Manchester United is absolutely unrivaled as well. And what a big few weeks ahead for Manchester United. So thank you for listening. Subscribe to this podcast feed and we'll be back again next week with another episode. Go well. The Athletics.